and welcome back to another episode of From My Mom's Basement, uh, the podcast that is recorded directly from my mom's basement. Uh, I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and we've got a good story for you today. Um, It's entitled The Last Supper, um, and it is written by me and read by me, uh, David Chamberlain. Thank you. There's an image that kind of flickers into my head sometimes. It's an old memory, clouded and distorted. It looks like it was shot on some 8mm film back in the 80s. But the memory has always brought me some kind of nostalgic comfort, like rewatching a favorite film or reminiscing with old friends. The image has become a kind of juvenile respite for me, a weighted blanket or a nightlight, some safe place that I can run to when the world around me gets dark and scary. The memory, like all great and perpetual things, is simple. It's a rainy day and the TV is on and my younger brothers are wrestling on the carpet. That's it. At this point, I can't tell you if the memory is reliable or if that memory is even real, but its veracity has no bearing on its importance or power. It still, after all these years, is capable of bringing me comfort. And so, as they brought in what was to be my final meal, I deployed that memory the same way you might deploy a bottle of painkillers or a fifth of vodka. I used it to keep the terror at bay to quell the unspeakable pain. When I had first put in the order for my last meal, I was afraid it would have been rejected on the basis of its almost absurd eclecticism. I feared that it would be sanctioned and corralled into something more manageable for the poor chefs. But no such alterations were made, and when the guard delivered my meal, he did so with a smile and a nod and a sincere apology in his eyes, something that said, I'm sorry, but this is all we can do for you. It was the first and last time I saw any amount of empathy from the prison staff. I realized then that perhaps they did see me as human and not some kind of bizarro zoo animal. I guess the kitchen's acceptance of my elaborate dinner order was another example of the penal system's begrudging care for its prisoners, for my last meal was quite the culinary spectacle. My last meal consisted of the following. A porterhouse steak, medium rare. A mound of mashed potatoes with creamy gravy a bowl of Velveeta mac and cheese, alongside a bowl of Kraft Dinner mac and cheese, two fried chicken drumsticks, fried rice doused in teriyaki sauce, a plate of waffled sweet potato fries, a giant glass of Coca-Cola, a chocolate milkshake, and a hot fudge sundae. The prison guard had to make two trips to bring it all in. I could smell the meal before it was even halfway down the cell block. Its aroma erupted into the corridor like some kind of hyper-powerful perfume, wafting into my cell and tickling my nose hairs with its miasmatic fingertips. When the meal was placed in front of me, I organized the dishes so that the porterhouse became the centerpiece while all the other dishes sat on the periphery. Like an artisan who prepares his tools before embarking on a project, I conducted the same practice, organizing and categorizing my dishes and utensils like an anal-retentive craftsman. There were so many textures, so many colors, so many smells. It was almost overwhelming. The decades of mundane and forgettable prison food made this meal all the more remarkable. For this was not only a choice meal for a prisoner, but for anyone within prison or without. And everything was made with mathematical exactness. Everything from the Velveeta to the Sunday had been concocted with the strictest observation of my requests. It was, in short, perfect. 
I hovered over the meal for a while, lowering my face to the dishes and letting the warmth of the food billow up against my cheeks like a hot wind. Its various appetizing smells began to fill my tiny cell, pushing out the harsher scents of concrete and metal and body odor that I had grown to live with for so long. I decided to view the meal from a different angle. I stood up on my bunk and admired the meal's beauty from a higher perspective. I found that an aerial view was necessary to gather its full intensity. Looking at it from a higher angle, I think it could have rivaled the Great Pyramids for sheer prominence and profundity. It could have been made into a still life, a beautiful oil painting with a kind of Norman Rockwell romanticism. It was nourishing just to look at it. I stood and watched the meal as it started to cool and relax and fall from its freshly cooked state. I watched as the thick, Velveeta cheese began to crystallize and form a thin film at the surface of the macaroni. I watched as the carbonation in the Coca-Cola began to fizzle out like a firework, sputtering and bubbling to placidity. I watched as the steam from the great porterhouse became less vaporous and visible until it finally wafted away entirely, disappearing like the last embers of a fire. The Sunday and the shake both lost their frozen structures, imploding in on themselves and creating goopy masses of melted cream and chocolate. The fudge from the Sunday mixed with the melted ice cream to create a kind of unappealing, charcoal-colored mess. The oil from the drumsticks started to congeal and lose its glistening sheen, and finally the piping hot gravy lost its fluidity and turned into a thick, crude substance that sat squat on top of the yellowing mashed potatoes. Only the fried rice and waffle fries resembled their original form. Minutes turned to half an hour, which then rolled into a full hour, and still I had not touched a bite of my food. I couldn't. I'm not sure why, but something kept me from eating. I couldn't bear to take a single bite of it. Each bite would render the meal closer to its full consumption, and once the meal was entirely consumed, I would, well, you know. I cut into the porterhouse just to take a look, just to see how it was cooked, and saw the beautiful red flesh at the center, which then faded into pink and then into the brown exterior crust. It was an esteemable culinary feat. It had been cooked perfectly, and I would not take a bite of it. Soon the once bright and flowery smells became subdued and stale and stuffy, like an air freshener that has lost its potency. It was almost nauseating. I needed the meal to be taken away. I couldn't look at it anymore. I couldn't exist in its presence. I needed to be rid of it. I took the melted milkshake and sundae and poured them out over the lukewarm porterhouse. The creamy liquid oozed out onto the charred cow flesh like milky lava, thick and soupy. Then the mac and cheese got dumped on top, as did the rice and the drumsticks and the waffle fries. Soon, the once distinct pieces of food became intermingled and intertwined with one another, creating a kind of pile of soggy, sloppy, grayish-brownish sludge. It looked like a massive mound of vomit, or perhaps something even more alien. It looked like something poisonous, or maybe even alive. Or like something that had once been alive, but was now dying. I was now even more repulsed than before. It needed to be destroyed. I took the monstrosity to my tiny toilet bowl and used a fork to scrape it all into its shallow water. The entire concoction fell off the plate simultaneously, hitting the metallic toilet with a single horrific splat. 
bits of mashed potatoes stuck to the sides of the toilet bowl like large clumps of white feces. I grabbed the glass of flat coke, which was now watery and lukewarm, and emptied it into the toilet on top of the culinary catastrophe. I looked down into the toilet, peered over my creation like Dr. Frankenstein. I half expected the pile of rotting food to lurch out of its murky confines and attack me like the barbaric, unnatural thing it was. I sat there and watched as the thing melted and gurgled and spat like a vacuous monster from hell. The many exotic colors and textures miscegenated until it all became a single, uniform color and shape. It was brown. The yellowish brown of unhealthy fecal matter. It needed to disappear. I tried flushing the toilet, but the water simply collected and rose above the terrible monster, burying it like so many other atrocities lost to the sea. The toilet water rose near to the rim of the bowl, almost overflowing, and the water soon turned to a thick, murky brown, the color of sewer water. I kneeled down next to the toilet bowl like someone who was about to be sick and peered into the obscure depths. There was a monster beneath all of that brownish water, an evil, meaty monster. I cupped my hands around my eyes like a kid at a toy store window and brought my face close to the water's surface. I thought that I could just make out the monster staring back up at me. It was like some kind of sea creature lurking beneath the surface. I sat and stared for who knows how long, watching and observing. Every now and again, a piece of macaroni or fried rice or a clump of mashed potato would rise to the surface of the toilet water like a scuba diver emerging from the depths. The surface of the water became perforated with all manner of food particulate. It looked like some kind of demented stew, something a madman or a lunatic would create. And then, as if no time had passed at all, there was the sound of the lock sliding out my door, and two guards stepped into my cell. They were my grim reapers. They were there to collect me, to escort me to my fate, to my doom. Suddenly I felt very hungry. The acute pangs of starvation began to stab the inside of my stomach. I felt weak and dazed and on the verge of passing out. I needed food. I informed the guards that there had been some kind of terrible misunderstanding, that I wasn't able to eat my last meal, that it had been stolen from me. I told them that my lovely meal had somehow ended up in the toilet. I began to cry. Tears, hot and salty, began to fall down my cheeks as I begged and pleaded and told them that there must be some kind of do-over, some kind of action that must be taken. I couldn't possibly be made to do anything without having my last meal. But the guards were stern and silent and apathetic towards my pleas. They took me by the shoulders and led me away from my cell, away from my monster. And the hunger began to consume me, and I started to scream and beg for some kind of easement of my suffering, of my terrible, terrible hunger. How could they put me to my death when I hadn't eaten my last meal? Where was the humanity? There was no deal made, no substitution given, no contingency plan for rare cases such as mine. It seemed that the formality of having a last meal was just that, a formality. The actual consumption of the meal made little difference to the executioner and I was dragged closer and closer to my inevitable demise. And as we reached what I knew to be my final destination, my stomach growled in terrible anger and frustration. It had been cheated, played, duped, tricked. They led me into the room, the tiny, stuffy room in which many living men entered, but none exited, and that grainy, fuzzy memory of my brothers wrestling on that rainy day began to play over in my head but it granted me no comfort, 
and rendered me no solace. That was The Last Supper. This episode was produced and edited by me. Um, Thank you all for listening.